I'm Jess O'Callaghan, and welcome to the Audiocraft podcast. This podcast was produced and recorded on the lands of the Darug people and the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my respects to their elders, past and present, and acknowledge that this always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. In this feed, you'll find all the recordings from the 2020 Audiocraft Podcast Festival, so you can relive your favourite sessions and give the wisdom shared by your audio idols a closer listen. How can one sound bring to life an entire story? From the cacophony of bird calls that gives Pan a moment of pause to the meaningless archival tape being wiped from human reach, audio eco-thriller Forest 404 is full of sounds that drive the plot forward and create a unique world that listeners and characters inhabit together. In this session, Becky Ripley and Timothy Exattack from the Forest 404 creative team talk about how one sound led them into a sonically beautiful story. Hi there, everyone. Thanks very much. Um, well, we're we're going to talk a bit about the uh, about the uh, sort of like the the process of that, that led up to the making of Forest Four Four, and then I'll 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 mostly deal with the uh, the kind of like the script side of things, and then Becky will talk a bit about um about production. If that's okay with you, Becky? Yeah, that's it. You take it away. <laughs> um, so I'm I'm a, a, a total nerd for um, creative process, and I've been told that. Uh, Audio crafters also are similarly enthusiasts in the, in their chosen fields. So I'm going to give an account of how the uh, the script of Forest 404 came to be through um, uh, lateral aesthetic connections and points of trivia and citations needed. And it won't always be reliable, but I hope it'll be fun somehow. So about 12 years ago, I went on a trip to a disused silver mine in Schauensland in Germany, because that's the, the, the kind of thing I do. Um, halfway through the visit, deep underground, I was told that um, in the extreme depths of this mine, there's a section from the, uh, the there's a selection from the German National Cultural Archives. So it's housed in aluminium canisters um, and designed to survive the apocalypse, which is uh, the sort of imagination and investment and careful forward thinking I, as a UK citizen, am extremely envious of, especially right now. Um, what interested me most, and to be clear, something might have been fudged here in translation, but I love this image all the same, is that the archivists involved in this sort of time capsule researched at length the uh, the best format on which to preserve music. Um, and having come to the conclusion that pretty much all digital technology was unreliable in the long run. They settled on committing sounds to something that would truly weather the ages, and that was vinyl. Um, so Beethoven and Marlene Dietrich and, I hope, Kraftwerk will sit out the ages as grooves in, uh, in good old wax. Um, and I mean, it makes sense. If you, uh, You'd hope it's a technology that... I don't know, the, the alien visitors would easily figure out if they were to land on the planet and find Homo sapiens extinct. Um, it also makes me think of how Edison um, originally thought the principal attraction of the phonograph as a piece of technology was that it would allow people to hear the voices of the dead. Um, a couple of years later, uh, I was working in the BBC Natural History Archives, sifting through uh, mouldering boxes of unlabeled audio rushes in various formats, trying to identify anything that we 
really shouldn't be junking because the BBC historically had a record of losing stuff in a way that we were keen not to repeat. Um, shout out to anyone thinking of most of Patrick Troughton's Doctor Who. I see you. We can we can do the sh secret handshake later. Um, so I was going through every last tape in my assigned boxes, and mostly this involved listening to uh, natural history recordists swearing at aircraft coming overhead. <laughs> at one point, there was um, a lengthy interview that I listened to with a parrot. Um, you can look him up. His name's Alex the African Grey Parrot. He's got his own Wikipedia page. Uh, it was actually a, a really, really sad interview. Um, but sometimes, amidst the cast-off cassettes and the, and the flaky tape spools, there'd be, so, there'd be some kind of gem. And one recording stopped me in my tracks. Uh, it was made in the Sumatran rainforest by a filmmaker called Sue Weston, uh, and it sounded like this. So, three things about this. First, we still don't entirely know what species of bird is singing. But it's a bird for sure. Um, it's some variety of whistling thrush. Its conservation status is uncertain. Secondly, Now, it's not a mimicking species, but this bird is singing in a Western musical scale. And as a composer, this kind of freaked me out. There's a bit of Gershwin in there, right? <laughs> <laughs> and third, here's the piece of music I eventually wrote, uh, uh, inspired by this sparse and repetitive melody. So that's how the, the bird and its song um, formed the anchoring point for a stage play made by my own company. Uh, we're called Sleep Dogs. Um, the show was called A Bullet in a Bass Trombone. It's the story of a symphony orchestra caught in a city during a military coup. Uh, it's a one-man performance. I'm, I'm the one man. Constructed through a collage of different sounds from news reports, diary entries field recordings, orchestral samples, which I would loop live. Um, all of it building up to this kind of musical fugue of narratives, all of it pointing to stuff that had gone, things that were lost or uncertain. So let's cut to the chase and talk about all the much better artists that I'm ripping off here. You might think of uh, Gavin Bryars, um, who in the 1970s wrote a piece of music called Jesus' Blood Never Failed Me Yet, which I've stolen from repeatedly over the years in, in spirit. Um, in Briar's music, uh, a recording of a homeless man singing a short hymnal refrain repeats over and over on a tape loop, and an ensemble plays along to it, gradually shifting in dynamic, the adding or losing instruments with each pass and becoming lusher and sadder or more glorious or ghostly or whatever it is that you personally hear in that amazing musical act. 
And for me, it lives somewhere between documentary and ritual and melodrama. And there's a play by Samuel Beckett called Crap's Last Tape, in which um, an ageing protagonist sits at a desk and listens to reel-to-reel spools of his younger self, and he criticises them. And that's pretty much the entire dramatic action of the play. But it's quiet and funny, and it's the definition of bittersweet for me. And I'm also a huge fan of listening to um, uh, kind of familiar pop music in partial states. So just the bass lines or just the string section, sometimes the lead vocal on its own. And some artists work this into their um, sort of like into their output as a matter of course. Um, a, a really well-known example is, is Björk, um, a songwriter who never quite lets her songs settle in one form and carefully releases um, collections of remixes or album reversions or extensions, which to my mind kind of interact with each other like um, entangled particles forever shifting the way that a listener hears the music overall. So everything I've talked about so far is is to sort of like build up a picture of the kind of practice I've I've developed over the years in in the emotional potential of storytelling through different kinds of sound. And for me, there's no better form in which to build a sense of, of perspective over time. When you have the sound alone, just the sound, it can speak distinctly of the potential for loss. And I think not just um, the losses of the past. Whenever I travel with my partner and co-founder of Sleep Dogs, Tanuja Amarasuria, uh, that's her on the left in this picture, we uh, habitually make field recordings and we're um, often struck by the possibility that what we're listening to, especially if it represents a local ecology, might be something that will disappear forever in the not too distant future and that we could be capturing a ghost before its time. So. All of this, all of this was what built up and was on my mind when Becky approached me with a brief for Forest 404. Now, there was there was only one main stipulation for the script writer of the, of the fiction strand, and that was that the story had to be about what it felt like to listen to recordings of the natural world. Uh, so, of course, I, I pitched a science fiction where the rainforest had died out, and uh, all that remained of them was archive recordings, most of which had survived on vinyl. It was one of those pictures where you go for broke, uh, finding what you, f- you what feels like the most remarkable expression of a particular emotion, and kind of expecting it to be a, a bit much for your commissioners, if I'm honest. But amazingly, Becky, thanks, Becky, said, um, yeah, let's do that. Fine. Uh, and what emerged was this story uh, of an archivist called Pan, uh, who lives in a future world that is still industrial, still growing in a city that has forgotten what it means to have a ground floor. Um, in, in the course of deleting data to make room for this uncompromising and resource-hungry world, she discovers a recording of a rainforest that stops her in her tracks. Um, because the forests have died, she's no idea what it represents, but she's bewitched and beguiled by it and... Her adventure starts from this recording and other recordings in the same vein. They lead her to discover how and why the old world, the world of forests, our world, um, has come to die. Now, at this point, it's worth me talking about the scope of the story. But to do that, I have to give out some uh, major spoilers. If you haven't heard the podcast yet and you want to remain 
unspoiled, uh, mute this feed and wait until you see a slide that will say, no more spoilers from me. Uh, ready? Okay. Here we go. What, what Pan discovers is that she and everyone she knows, in fact, the entire society that she lives in, they're all completely manufactured. She's effectively a robot. Um, old school biological humans as a species have long since died out as the result of a, of a quite spectacular act of hubris. When I researched the natural repercussions of what might happen with, say, four degrees of global warming, it didn't take much of a leap of imagination to picture an upcoming 50 or, or 60 years where, in effect, humans stubbornly kept to a, a model of unthinking growth economics despite all the damage that it's doing to us, you know, ecologically, mentally, socially, individually. Um, I began to imagine a timeline where we used artificial intelligence to attempt to solve the climate crisis through sheer processing power. And I imagined an international agreement that consented to whatever this AI suggested, but only on the basis that its solutions protected growth economics endless growth despite being one of the stupidest concepts available seems to be the one thing that 95 percent of nations can agree on right now um but then i wondered what if this algorithm of this ai was instructed to protect economic growth to protect progress but nowhere in its programming was it specified that it had to protect human beings i could easily imagine a political situation where a wording on human rights couldn't be agreed and would therefore just be omitted. So that, in the world of Forest 404, is how humans die out. They're not massacred. There's no tragedy of biology, say like a, a, a worldwide pandemic or anything like that. Um, instead, um, Homo sapiens is basically ignored and belittled to death uh, by a new dominant life form because biology isn't the most important part of the pattern any longer. It's not an important pattern at all. I mean, that there are, of course, plenty of precedents for this kind of colonial genocide within our own species history. And for, for me, the great horror of AI isn't that it might be more powerful than us. It's that it might keep the worst parts of us. Yeah, if you can't tell already, I'd, I'd be made very, very angry by my research um, in a, enough to kill everyone, basically. Um, but, but I didn't want to kind of like a, a Terminator-style apocalypse, you know, an, an immediately obvious dystopia. It was important not to write Pan as, as an unemotional robot. And emotions, especially the fear of death, are primary drivers for capitalism, after all. So this future world, this algorithm, would see them as essential to economics, um, I wanted this to be a story of what happens when something takes over and to ask whether what remained could still be called human, given that it originally came from Homo sapiens and was conforming to a huge swathe of, of human behaviours, you know, especially the, the really, really stupid ones. So, in summary, that's how you get from a silver mine in Germany and an archive sound audit at the BBC to the end of humanity as we know it. So, okay, I'll t maybe I'll talk for a couple of minutes about the, about the script itself. I I'd written uh, plenty of audio dramas prior to Forest 404, but never a podcast series as such. And I was really, really taken by Becky's um, encouragement right from the start to write for voices inside the head rather than voices over a radio. Um, 
I mean, it's very, very much to my taste to leave space for the listener to do their own work and make their own conclusions rather than just kind of run a series of of dramatic pronouncements. And I know that's that's to Becky's taste as well. But all the same, uh, there was a lot of learning for me to do. Um, the first draft of the story, and this is the, the menu page of the first draft here, the first draft of the story was pretty much a novel um, <laughs> and would have required, what, Becky, double the time we had in the studio, something like Yeah. Um, I, I knew this, and it, I, I did know this as I was writing it. It was perhaps a reflection of the speed at which it was written more than anything else. Our turnaround was quite tight for all kinds of reasons. But I wouldn't recommend... Uh, writing out to such a ludicrous extent as a general tactic, largely because of the deep sense of alarm in the first set of notes from your producer. Yeah. Sorry, Becky. Um, <laughs> I, I, I also don't think good prose fiction necessarily makes for good podcast material. Um, you have to ask the same tough questions you ask of um, in, in, in any artistic conversation about format and platform. So when I was writing the second draft, I was focused more than anything else of, of, of Becky's Becky's idea of what it might be like to whisper the story into someone's ear. Most of uh, the first draft was done in a place called Pervasive Media Studio at Watershed. Um, it's, Bristol's a, it's a multimedia art centre in Bristol. I don't pay for this desk space, but I, but I have to be interruptible and willing to talk about what I'm doing and to engage in what other folks are doing. Those are the, the terms and conditions. Sometimes fellow residents would ask why I was scowling and fidgeting and moving my lips very fast most of the day. And that was me enacting the part of Daria. Not not as well as Tanya Moody did it, obviously, but um, it felt like the best way to ensure that I connected the script to the voice rather than laying out nice prose that made itself feel, when read aloud, like nice prose. The second draft also got rid of roughly, uh, I don't know, 30% of the detail in the world building and a couple of supporting characters. There were other tactics that we quite rapidly ditched. Um, back to the first draft here. You can see in the first draft, all three voices had um, different rules around the tense that they spoke in and who they were ostensibly speaking to. So Pan, um, our hero, was entirely in present tense and directly addressing the listener. Daria was giving some kind of testimony to silent correspondence, people we'd never hear, and mostly speaking in past tense, while Thea um, was heard only in dialogue with Pan. Now, I don't know, this 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 might have worked, um, but Becky and I both agreed that it felt like far too big a risk to leave to the studio. Um, and, and in some ways, I'm glad we didn't pursue it, because, I mean, in retrospect, it could it could well have diluted that core sense of a voice whispering secrets in your ear. And perhaps it could also have made the story feel more like a puzzle. I mean, helping the listener feel a little bit safer in this weird discombobulating world seemed like a better idea than making it feel like there was a, um, a cleverness or a tricksiness for them to actively set about solving right from the start. I think part of why I was experimenting with this, this tactic of tensors and approaches was was because I'd I just emerged from another science fiction project, um, which was several episodes of something for Chinese TV, where my scripts were to be translated into Mandarin. And tensors in Mandarin, some of you will probably know this, are very they're very very different to English, and for popular formats especially, it uh, it affects the way um, it affects the very nature of storytelling. There's not much temporal jumping around that you do. You don't like sort of start in media res and then like shift back to earlier that day, for instance. You don't you don't cut away to earlier events. 
Now, I've, I've come to believe on an, on an almost ethical level that um, artists should allow influences and motivations to leap from one field of work to another, that, um, uh, that diverse and exciting stuff happens when you allow things to cross-pollinate and um, in unexpected ways. But all the same, you also have to be aware as a writer when really you're just doing something you want to do, when you're serving yourself and not your audience. It's it's not always wrong to serve yourself, but in this case, it just it just wasn't right. The other thing is looking back on these scripts. I, it's funny how little direction there is in the script on sound design, generally speaking. Given that I'm a sound designer myself, occasionally I've written something like this. Um, this is the start of, a, of an episode later in the series. A smooth mechanical transport sound, slowly and steadily rising, something like a shepherd tone, but one where its parameters shift higher and higher throughout, creating a subconscious tension. Not asking much, am I? Um, <laughs> this is this is unusual in the script of Forest 404. Uh, and it's interesting. Well, why, why is it unusual? Um, I think because the whole thing was driven by the emotional impact of sound, I mostly held back and only described the really, really key elements. It's also perhaps because I know um, from her previous work that, that Becky has this amazing, amazing approach to audio design. Um, and I've often thought that it's a bit like, her audio design is a bit like an illuminated text. You know, the sounds curl and unfurl around the story. There are little sonic illustrations within illustrations. There's overlays and marginalia and stuff that you only spot on the, on the second or third listen. So on that note, I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> and stop talking about scripts and I'm going to let Becky uh, talk you through how Forest 404 was produced. Thank you Tim, that was lovely, <laughs> really nice, I haven't seen that presentation before. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I'm going to take off the bat from there really and talk about the making and shaking of it as I've rather cheesily written here um, and essentially that is I'll talk a bit about the format because it is a complicated one and then from there the casting, recording, editing, a bit about the branding because I think thinking visually is important at the end of the process um, and then also the experiment that we ran alongside it. Um, so before we do anything I think this is just quite a nice overview, it's a two minute video, it's not a video, it's a bit of audio with, a, with an image. Um, and it just gives you an overview of the whole project um, because as well as the drama which Tim's amazingly talked about the origins of alongside each episode of the drama we had an accompanying talk and an accompanying soundscape so you could kind of um, step into the drama uninterrupted so I'll play you this and you'll get a sense of the whole thing for people who haven't yet heard it can you feel loss for something you have never known Forest 404, an environmental thriller for BBC Sounds. I'm so sorry. Leap Pan. Why did? She lives a few centuries from now, after a data crash that wiped out most records of life from before the 23rd century. So when she finds an old recording of a rainforest, she has no idea what it is. Nine part thriller. I feared Pan might lead me somewhere. I was right. Unethical. No. I will remember. Remember. I, remember, I, I, I will remember it was happening. You can't stop this noise. Nine part talk. There is a very real limit to our ability to store data, and that limit is environmental. 
because the environment. So sound could be a much more helpful way of understanding the health of an ecosystem than sight. And often in you realise you're sitting next to something which inhabits deep time. We may very well be the first species to have evolved to become so clever and inventive so as to cause our own extinction. Nine-part soundscape. There's also the Forest 404 experiment, built in collaboration with the Arts and Humanity Research Council, where you can help chart human responses to different sounds of nature. So in a bid to understand how people respond to the sounds of nature and what kind of effects they can have, we're running one of the largest soundscape experiments ever conducted. You can help us generate new data that will lift the lid on how the sounds of the natural world make people feel. To link to the survey, go to bbc.co.uk forward slash forest. So there you have it. That's the whole caboodle. Um, there was a lot to do. It was incredibly overwhelming. Um, but basically, you had this flat or three-headed beast, um, I called it, because it totally took over my life for a few months, um, where the central thing was the drama, and Tim was just an absolute godsend. Um, and then coming off the back of each episode, um, we would try and take themes to bring the kind of science fiction future world back into our present world and to sort of relate it into things that are happening now and changes that are happening around us now, be that climate change, be that technological change. Um, so, for example, episode one, Pan finds this recording of the rainforest from our era. Um, and so our talk is about the mental health effects of listening to sounds of nature and, and particularly sounds of forests. Um, and then our soundscape was a forest symphony. Uh, it was it was the rainforest recording that Pan hears, which is the whistling bird, which you've already heard a little bit of. Um, and that that structure follows all the way through down to uh, the final episode, episode nine, um, and then we kind of end it with a a kind of love letter to the forest written by this nature writer called David Haskell. And our final soundscape is the theme tune in full um, because we wanted a chance to, to play that out uh, again, like on its own in isolation and celebrate it. Um, so that, that structure was, it was really interesting. I learned so much um, making the different strands because uh, it makes you realize how you can get the same thing across in such different ways across different genres. Um, and often you might be appealing to a different audience. So some people love drama and will binge it. Other people are much more factually um, led. And it was interesting looking at the listener habits because the drama was often um, listened to back to back, whereas uh, the talks were often listened to on commutes and things, so much more sporadically. Um, and the soundscapes were the most interesting things to look at in terms of the listening habits because and um, people would listen to them quite late at night or early in the morning. So they served as a more um, emo emotional function in a way to people's lives, um, which I think was was the point of doing them. So it was interesting to, to kind of work to that format. Um, I'll, I'll give you an example of how it works. There's not any spoilers here, just some tiny clips. This is a clip from episode four in which Pan first sees uh, a real life tree for the first time ever and she's never seen a tree before it's the last one that exists in in this future world 
It sprouted from the central well. It had its own central pillar with grooves and undulations and fractal extensions. A body that copied itself in smaller and smaller nodes the higher it reached until its hair or whatever shifted back and forth in a breeze that couldn't exist. Like throwing light and shadow in drifts across the concrete below. So yeah, she doesn't even have the language for it, which I know Tim found very interesting because he couldn't use any natural language. Um, so describing leaves as hair, for example. Um, and then we would, out of that episode, think about what the talk could be. And for the talk accompanied episode four, we interviewed a tree climber and a tree surgeon. Uh, so part of his job, he's forever up trees and, and marvelling at them um, from all sorts of different perspectives. And so he was able to um, to give us some biological insight into how trees live so long. Um, and so here's a little clip of that. Like Pan, I've come face to face with what can only be described as a true relic, a survivor of a tree. They reckon this tree is about 1,200 years old, which definitely makes it the oldest sweet chestnut in Britain, if not Europe. And so when you look at something as complicated and as big and gnarly as this, you realise you're sitting next to something which inhabits deep time on a scale far beyond anything we as human beings could ever hope to experience. So that then carries on, but that gives you a, a sense of how we took the talks from the drama and tried to kind of bounce off them, um, which is, is harder than you think, because it's really hard to make things glue when they're cross genre, or I found it hard at least. Um, and Tim helped us to frame it sometimes. He'd, he'd, um, he'd write the introduction that Pearl does at the start of every um, talk, she'd bookend it, and, and that way at least there's something familiar for the for the listener. And then finally, uh, as you'd expect, uh, for company episode four and talk talk four, we had uh, a soundscape of uh, British woodland this time. Um, so we kind of wanted a mix of exotic sounds and familiar sounds. I mean, this goes on for ages. Uh, I better skip to the next slide, but it's very relaxing. We've just woken up in Britain, and this is quite a nice, a nice thing for our morning. I don't know whether it's the same for you guys in Australia. So, looking at the whole process, I'm going to focus most on the drama because that's where most of the production was. Um, once. I'd uh, done a bit of script editing with Tim, then it gets to the casting. Obviously, Tim's spoken about the whole process up until then, which was a huge odyssey for him. So for me, it really started with casting and uh, I was really keen for it to be diverse and for the voices to have the different colours in them, um, not just in order to be sort of representative with a cast, but also so that the ear can hear um, the difference in characters, even though there's only three characters, which is helpful because I think with audio drama, if you've got too many, it can get quite difficult. 
I still think it's important to have very different qualities of voice because um, it just helps the listener, especially if they're kind of um, transitioning quickly in a kind of A, B, A, B way when they tell a story. It really helps for the ear to, to be able to identify the voices without kind of, you know, double guessing. Um, so chuffed to just get an amazing trio of incredible women. Um, this is Paul Mackie, who played Pan, Tanya Moody, who plays the very amazing Daria, and uh, Pippa Hayward, who plays Sia, who's just an absolute joy. They were all brilliant. We recorded it in five days, the whole thing. Um, as I'm sure most of you know who make podcasts, they aren't money trees. And so often you are up against the clock. But I think because of the style of, of script that Tim talked about, because it wasn't naturalistic reenactment, because it was kind of, you know, um, straight kind of, uh, uh, trying to think of the word, sort of first person testimonial, it meant that actually you could get through uh, the recording process quite quickly. Um, and it was it was just an absolute whirlwind of a week. A quick note here, I really want to just applaud Tim because in the early drafts and when we were going back and forth with script editing, I remember saying to him, should Daria be a man? Um, that, this is coming from someone who's, I, I think of myself very much as a feminist, um, but I just felt that A, the listener needs a different voice that's, you know, audibly very different to the female um, voice of Pan. Uh, Daria is the antagonist, so it would kind of counterbalance our protagonist. Um, and I also was worried, I guess, in a more commercial way, that it would alienate a male listenership, which was maybe me being really, maybe not trusting the listener enough. But I'm aware that podcast figures are still slightly more male skewed. There's more male listeners um, across the whole podcast genre than there are female and I know in sci-fi especially it's more of a male game and I was just a bit worried that we had this you know all female cast and I thought oh are we going to alienate people and Tim stuck to his guns and and argued for it and said you know this is in a way it's in a post-gender world this future world that he's built um, so in a way it should be irrelevant and I'm really glad he did and, and just to go slightly off, off piste with this, I don't know if anyone know, knows who that is. Uh, it's someone called Alison Bechdel. She created the Bechdel test, of which there are only three rules when making a piece of work. And those three rules are the work must contain two women who speak to each other. And the third rule is that they have to be able to speak to each other about anything other than a man. It's the most basic test and you'd think that every piece of work would or at least should pass. Obviously 404 passed regardless of whether um, Daria was man or woman, it, the whole script passed with flying colours. But I, I just think it's interesting to think about because still there's so many um, films, this is a set of about 8,000 films, that don't pass the test. There you go. Applaud us to Tim for arguing for an all-female cast. <laughs> so back on track, the recording comes next, and the casting, obviously. And as Tim's already mentioned a bit, I really love, especially with the podcast medium, things that are closely recorded. So that was kind of the first thing 
uh, to direct. Um, I think I think this for lots of reasons. I think it plays to the podcast medium because most people listen through headphones and therefore it has that sense that the voice is in their head and it's, it's got a, a kind of intimacy. Um, it also means you can have an informality because the actor doesn't have to act. You know, you can have real subtlety. It's like it's like theatre versus film acting in a way. Right? On the stage, you have to be larger than life. And if you have a camera right here for a film, you can just totally scale it back and the tiniest twitch in your face gives away a lot. And I think in podcasts, it's, it's important to veer towards that film model more. Otherwise, you can end up with, with that kind of radio actor voice, um, which you do hear sometimes and that I don't like. Um, but yeah, no projection, it prevents overacting. It also means you can be deadpan, excuse the pun. Um, sorry, Tim, yeah, I don't think Tim likes my pun. Um, but pan in particular, Pearl was so good at, at being really dry and deadpan and, and having closely mic um, microphones enables that, I think. So here's an example from the outset of that close intimate feel. This is literally within the first 30 seconds of episode one. So if you can actually hear this, if anyone can hear me, maybe this is a chance to explain myself. Just a tiny clip for you really, but it's, you know, she's not having to project. She's able to be really natural in a way. Um, the second thing to bear in mind was that because this is first person testimonial, it meant that the recording process, it meant that each actor just imagined talking to one other person who was sat maybe a metre from them in a way that you would uh, if you were sort of being questioned in a case or something. And that again, like informs how you set up your recording and how your actors perform. They're retelling or recounting rather than naturalistic acting. Uh, and that means when it comes to dialogue, I, I really love that it's it's not necessarily naturalistic. Instead, they're kind of doing impressions of each other and, you know, Pan will be like, and then Guggy was like, and then she'll do an impression of Guggy. And um, I think I think it, it really plays to that, that, that style of narration that you hear in audio books, which works so well. And I think it's why kind of Audible is taking off in a way, because it's just lovely to be told a story rather than hear one uh, slightly cardboardly acted sometimes. <laughs> so here's an example of um, that kind of impression. After a moment, he nodded, probably, then said, There are, of course, the rumours of those inner dwellers. Perhaps they have long since died out. But the stories are, a few still walk the ruins of the old city, deep beneath ours, still tending uselessly to the world that ended. I love that. That's her impression of an interlocutor. For those who have heard up until episode, end of episode two, I think. Finally... Playing with subjectivity was something we could do that the script already did. And, and we talked a lot about that, Tim and I. Um, the fact that this style of narration meant you had different characters often um, 
saying very different versions of the same event. Um, and that obviously also ties into how you record it. So you're playing with bias and the fallibility of memory and hindsight, and the whole script does that. Um, conflicting accounts, often Daria's view of something is very different to Pan's view of something. And it's nice as the listener to be sat in the middle and to realize that there's no such thing as absolute truth in a way, different angles of the same event. And that also means you can intercut your accounts. So you can play with that kind of um, the pace and rhythm of, of going Daria, Pan, Daria, Pan, Pan, Daria, 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 Pan, Pan. Um, and I think that can be used in so many ways dramatically. That can be used to build tension if it's a particularly tense bit of scene. That can be used for comedic value. And it means you can pass the baton of narration because uh, often, you know, a certain character won't have seen a certain thing. It also prevents audio fatigue, I think. If as a listener, you always just hear one voice, uh, you can sort of grow tired. So I think it's just being aware all the time to think for the ear, which Tim does so well in his writing. So here's an example of playing with subjectivity. This is from episode one. It doesn't give too much away, but um, Anne does have her memory meddled with a little bit. I know she asked me some questions, but I don't, I don't. Oh. What's going? What's going? What's going? Going. going. What's going on? I asked her how the recordings made her feel. Her answer failed the test. Mm, because, because then the memory at the memory at. I don't. I asked her if she wanted to delete the file or escalate it. Her answers failed the test. Oh, sorry, sorry. And here's an example of the intercutting of accounts and the playing of with pace whilst doing that. Then we were stumbling across the rise and fall of each shattered building, trying not to drop into any holes, and sometimes I'd lift her up and jump. Gotta say, this one was pretty nimble for a desk jockey. Until with the hands closing in, gaining ground, we reached the place where I'd first been pitched into the inner. Yeah, there it is. The capsule's right. And she was so small, we could both fit inside. Scoot your fat ass over, love. I'm not sitting on you like a jet wrestle. But as the capsule closed... Hands were spidering up the side of a building like oversized toys gone wrong. And they were wrecked. Half melted, exposed ribs, burnt, flickering faces. But, make a time. The capsule slammed shut. Shonk. There you go. It's a nice ABAB format with Pan and Thea. So, after recording comes editing. There was a lot to edit. When editing, I thought a lot about this word, biophony. Um, and for those who don't know what biophony means, uh, the, the word sort of breaks down from the Greek, bio meaning life, phon meaning sound. Um, it's actually a very new word, it's a neologism, if you want to use that word, um, used to describe the collective sound um, that vocalising animals create within one given environment. So it's a sort of ecology of sound. and. It's amazing because environments that have evolved over a long period of time, the species within those environments have learned to inhabit different parts of the sonic spectrum. And it means that they can all cut through and they can all be heard. It's, it's kind of like a natural orchestra where each instrument within an orchestra um, inhabits a different part. You've got the bass, you've got the tenor, you've got the alto, you've got the soprano, and everything cuts through because they're not contending in terms of their frequency. And I think editing is the same. I think for a good 
edit, you want um, you want everything to be on a different sort of bit of the sonic frequency. So yeah, a well-mixed program should, I really think it should do the same. You've got your voices at mid-range and then you want to make sure that your sound effects and your music aren't at that same range so they don't contend. And this is particularly true, I think, with, with illustrating Forest 404 because it's so vocally led in the telling of it. But to build the world, you need that sound design always underneath it. And so you just need to make sure that it's, it's high end or low end and not competing. And you can also sort of play with obviously volume automation, but also things like high pass and low pass filters. And you can detune stuff. And that way you're making sure um, nothing can contend and the ear can isolate the sounds and, and also hear the whole mix with clarity. Yeah, it's just a, it's a good word, I think. Um, it's very relevant to 404 in lots of ways. The other thing when editing that I thought about was how to have recurring motifs and Tim's script already did this in terms of the, uh, the language. The whistling bird, obviously, Tim's already talked about and it was there from the outset of his of his world building and it was there from the outset of the story. It, it kickstarts the story, basically. So that was something that I thought in the edit was important to have as this motif throughout. This is it as a natural SFX, a sound effect, the one that Tim found when he was working in the archives. And then, as Tim said, it sings in a Western scale, which is absolutely nuts. Um, I also play a bit of music. I think both of us totally geeked out about that. Um, it meant that for the theme song, which incredibly we got Bonobo to do, I don't really know why he said yes, because we didn't have much money. I think he just liked it. Um, it meant I was able to give him that sample and and in the brief for the theme tune, I was able to say, can, can this form the basis of the melody? And so this is what he did with it. And then, oh, there it is once more. And then as the episodes get uh, more and more threatening, I suppose is a good word, um, and a bit more off the wall, uh, and things start breaking down, our sound design did the same. And our soundscapes went, they kind of migrated from being natural soundscapes to being a bit more sort of digitally manipulated ones. So here is a soundscape of pans dwindling. I won't give away too much what that means for people who haven't yet heard the podcast. Um, but again, this was using the sample and manipulating it and playing with it digitally. And finally, if you're not already sick of it, <laughs> um, another example of it coming back in Thea's memory, uh, which again, I won't give away the story, but she even uh, has an echo of it back from an, uh, uh, an earlier era. So we're just playing with that sci-fi genre a bit and weaving it back in.
actually my cameo. <laughs> um, so we're just playing with that motif and it was it was really lovely in the edit, thinking about all the different motifs and kind of weave throughout and that was obviously the main one. That was in F major or D minor, um, D minor being the relative minor of F major. And so because of that, um, that kind of dictated the key of the whole edit. Um, it meant that all the music tracks, Bonobo's theme, but also all the other ones, music tracks that we used, all the textures that I created um, as sound beds, um, and even most of the sound effects um, were detuned um, in the edit, the F major or D minor. And the the most the kind of most important thing about that is that because it's this complicated three-headed beast or plat of a format and it is kind of in terms of genres all over the place I think it was really important that the sound was like a glue and that by detuning everything everything inhabited the same world um so you've just heard a bit of a theme tune here's uh, the sound of the light bouncing down into fume town and it's in it kind of resonates in an f major And then here is the sound of the cavernous hum of the inner, which is a really subtle sound bed, um, uh, but you hear it underneath a lot of the episodes where pans deep, deep down. And even this was detuned into a, a D minor. you get the gist and finally another example the hands kind of bleeping sound was uh, in a kind of f major d minor and actually it means if i play all three they'll work together really well because they're all in the same key so here's the hands and then i'll bring in the other two so there you go but if we want to get a bit more geeky within the f major scale you've got all sorts of chords as you go up uh, tone by tone and so when I was creating some drones um, to access the sound beds, um, I didn't just have things in, in D minor and F major, I also had things in G minor, A minor, D minor, uh, E diminished. Um, and here's just an example of some of those drones. I'll, I'll, play, I'll play them separately and then I'll play them all together, but very quickly, because I know I'm running out of time. There's a drone. There's a drone that's up fifth from there, I think. There's a really bassy drone. There's a drone that's up two octaves from that. And if I play them all together, they should all work. So there you go. Quickly come to branding. I think people who make radio are so audio driven 
that sometimes you spend you spend all this time making a beautiful beautiful thing and then you serve it up like a sort of poo on a plate because you don't think about what it looks like and with podcasts especially there's just so many obviously you know I'm sure all of you out there make stuff and listen to stuff it's a totally saturated market that having a good icon I think is really really important um so I just got together with a with a friend who is quite into photography and we had a couple of hours with Pearl at the end of our five days of recording everything um and we did a photo shoot with her and played with this idea of her hair being a forest um and we did we did put time into it um and it was really fun and we decided on this icon that you'll be familiar with we played with different colored backgrounds in the end we went for the kind of blue up into orange background which is a kind of inverse of um a skyline at dusk um and then from there uh i reversioned everything um into all the different assets that you need and this is a bit boring but i i just think it's kind of important to just think about from the outset all the things that you, you kind of need to make so you've got your icon you've probably got a program page or brand image um you might have to make an itunes banner um you probably want to think about your title being a ping that you can put on top of other things um you might make a skin for different web pages uh you might want to make gifts um and it's just thinking visually uh yeah that to cut through i guess um finally the experiment this was done with an amazing guy called alex at the university of exeter um and we built the experiment alongside making the podcast and for people who aren't aware of, of what it was it was basically quite a big academic um study into the sounds of nature and how they make people feel which obviously was at the heart of the drama as well so everything kind of worked um some background to that there's obviously increasing research into nature being good for mental health um quicker recovery from hospital wards uh, has been proven in um, rooms that have a view onto a green space or onto the sea. And actually, that initial study dates back to the Victorian era. And since then, there's been more and more studies reaffirming. Um, there's a direct correlation between access to green space and divorce rates, I think it's fascinating. Um, there's also more and more uh, studies showing uh, a sense that people who live um, in rural areas or by the sea are less egotistical or less narcissistic, um, less kind of individualistic because they see themselves within a larger ecosystem. So there's all this stuff that is just super interesting. Um, and there's a lot of existing data on the visuals of nature and how that affects our mental well-being. But there was not much on audio, on the sounds of nature. And that's where the experiment came in. Uh, we've had about 10,000 participants. I think it is now closed. Um, but that was a huge data set and it, it meant we could um, find out a lot of stuff. Um, very quickly, within it, we had different types of natural sounds. So we had abiotic sounds where there's no um, animal species within the environment. For example, an abiotic rainforest would sound like this. So it's just the sound of 
the dripping rain on leaves or streams, maybe some thunder. And this is the same track, but with a cacophony of, um, of animal species. So we had a few different samples of this. This is a subaquatic one without animals. And this is the same subaquatic with animals. To cut a very long story short, all the natural sounds um, came in the calm and content quartile of this, this kind of emotions chart, which is really interesting, I think, um, for lots of reasons. I don't really have time to go into all of it, but we can have questions at the end about it. Um, but the most interesting thing, I think, is that people, one of the, the questions was about your likelihood to keep the track. Um, and we kind of placed people uh, in the head of Pan as if they're someone who gets to decide whether or not to keep uh, an audio track. And people were much more likely to keep the audio track if it was biotic, so if it had the sounds of animals in. Um, they were still likely to keep an abiotic one, and they were less likely to keep ones that had a human voice in. Um, so I think that was, again, really, really interesting because it can weave into how we live. Um, and there, there is some policy change that will hopefully come from this. We've had some interest from DEFRA, who's the Department for Energy, Food and Rural Affairs. Um, and they've got some goals for engaging um, people in nature uh, for 2030. And we've also um, had links with the NHS and we're thinking about how to um, maybe play with the idea of having birdsong in hospital corridors, um, city planners, architects, acoustic designers, there's all sorts of things and ways to build this in. And, and finally, the sort of the response to all of this, we, we've had an amazing number of downloads and streams, 2.5 million, um, and we've had a lot of people actively listening rather than just listening as a podcast. So, you know, doing um, doing things as part of Mental Health Awareness Week. Um, there's a picture here of some scouts listening um, in the middle of the woods, which is just such a lovely image. And, you know, Instagram, Twitter responses. Um, I just want to end on this one. It's a tweet from someone in Australia. So it sort of brings, brings it back to you and, and the audience we're speaking to today. Obviously, you've had horrific fires um, early on in 2020. and I think the podcast had a bit of a spike in Australia when that happened. And the, this woman, Hayley, tweeted, walking back to my parents' house from the shops and listening to Forest 404 podcast, bizarre hearing the sounds of nature when there's nothing left. It's kind of heartbreaking because um, it's almost like the fiction of it is, is unfurling in front of our eyes. Yeah, I think it's just nice to kind of leave that there. And thank you and questions. Yeah, Hi, Jess. Hello. Hi guys. That was incredible. There was a lot of amazement when you said that you recorded all of this in five days. And hmm. I think um, something that people were asking afterwards, and in particular, Nicole asks, how long was development and scripting? And I would like to add um, it, it, as well, editing, mixing, you know, from the start of production to maybe the mix being locked. How, how long would that period have been? Um, Tim has told me a story, Becky, that you stayed back over Christmas to mix everything in. <laughs> 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 
So I imagine yeah. that. But, um, but yeah, we're interested to know how long everything else took. Shall I take it or do you want to, Tim? You, you take it away, Becky, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think the the scripting process had a few months, but that was in terms of the thinking of it. The actual writing of it was quite quick, wasn't it? Mm, yeah, um, yeah. And and you turned out a novel pretty much <laughs> at speed, <laughs> absolute speed. Um, the, yeah, the recording was five days. Uh, that took us, that was in November and then I had to basically edit it uh, throughout December and have it delivered by the end of December or the start of January. Um, so it was a hairy turnaround because that wasn't just the nine episodes of drama, that was also all the interviews um, and the factual talks and also designing the soundscapes. That's um, incredible. I mean, <laughs> comments they um a lot of it's about you know oh five days for recording but I'm sure they had a lot of time for the rest of it but that is a, a, a huge feat so I'm really impressed to hear that. <laughs> and yeah um, and yeah what I what I remember is what I remember is kind of like in the studio there was one with our, our the actors were so on it that there was one day where we were able to like sort of sit in the in the in the live room and talk for you know maybe about half an hour about one particular sticking point and that that was towards the end of the process wasn't it and so there was this remarkable moment of calm towards the end of the recording as well where we were able to sit and talk in great depth about some of the concepts behind what um one of the actors was being asked to deliver yeah i remember that with the climate story and, and yeah. we showed pippa the map or tim yeah. had the map with him of, of you know projected migration patterns of climate change and where people are expected to go essentially from the mid bands up to the two poles and um and we talked about that a lot because that mm -hmm. was the kind of background to her character's journey yeah so even in the five days you found some time for calm <laughs> impressive everyone would be very impressed to hear that um uh corey asked well, you were talking about close micing um and in particular for narration what are your tricks for close micing without picking up a lot of mouth noise, sibilance and popping? And others added, what sort of mics do you use for that? What was it recorded on? Oh, good question. Uh, I can't remember exactly what kind of mic it was. I think it was a Sennheiser, but I can't remember the model. Sorry about that. In terms of tips, obviously a pop shield. If you don't have a pop shield and you're at home and you want a makeshift one, you can, you can wrap a pair of tights over any kind of hoop. Um, and that works really well, especially tights that aren't really thick dernier or whatever the word is. <laughs> you know, the ones that are a bit translucent, they work really well. Um, and it's a, it's a balance between not getting so close that it distorts. So you want to be close, but if you if you overdo it, you, you distort the voice. Um, making sure that you talk over the mic rather than into it prevents popping because you think about the direction of breath. Um, What's the other thing? Oh, water. Just making sure your actors constantly have water because then it stops that sound. That's a good tip. Hydrate hydrate your actors. Feed, feed yeah. your actors, hydrate them, and uh, your, your audio will be better. That's a really good tip. Um, Yo Bell asks, uh, now that you're out the other side, would you have structured it differently in any way? Is there anything you'd change about um, the structure of the story in particular? Do you want oh. to talk about that, Tim? 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, it's 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 particularly interesting to me because we're we're now developing Forest Four for for um, for screen. So that's kind of like it's been much on my mind recently in terms of what what kind of changes might occur around that. But looking looking back on the, there was an interesting point where I actually. I think I think I'm right in saying, Becky, that it was I, I made the argument for reducing our episode count slightly, and 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 having slightly longer episodes. I think now, looking back, I might even try to make a case for an extra episode. There's there's kind of like, and um, there's a beautiful thing that uh, that uh, uh, Barry Jenkins, the director of Moonlight, amongst other films, says about about immersion. And that's that in, in order to be truly immersive, in order for a story to be truly immersive, it's got to have as close to zero exposition as you can possibly get. And that's, it kind of makes me feel that we might have been able to build a bit more space into it, have a bit less exposition by having more episodes. I don't know. I don't know. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a possibility looking back. How long is the month of December, Tim? How, <laughs> how long do you have to, <laughs> to edit those episodes together? But um, that's, that's really insightful um, and really interesting to hear that that you're developing the story at the moment for screen and, and I'd love to, to get you back <laughs> on a, another digital stream another time to talk about what lessons you learn in that process because I think that's mm. something that people are really interested in as well. Um, I've got one, one more for each of you. Um, this one first for, for Becky. So Corinne asks, how can sound like the sound in Forest 404 be captured or can it be captured um, at the moment in lockdown? So what challenges are you having um, collecting audio for projects you're working on and, and how's the BBC managing that? Is there anything you're working on at the moment that you find um, these recording recordings challenging? That's a really good question. Um, the, the very lucky thing about working in-house at the BBC is that it has this incredible archive, which Tim obviously used to work for and log. Um, so actually a lot of the sound design in 404 comes from that archive. You know, we, we didn't have the time or budget to go to Sumatra, sadly. <laughs> I would have loved to go to Sumatra. Um, so yeah, most of it actually came out of this library of, of sounds that have been recorded and logged over decades. Really. Um, and since lockdown, I've, I've made a lot of radio. Um, I, you know, I'm, I work in house, so I've been making it constantly since lockdown. And we're really relying on that archive, as well as things like freesound.org, which is, I'm sure, a lot of people use. Um, this amazing platform. It's very hit and miss, but you can often find something really bespoke. Um, you can still do your own recordings, especially out in the open. If you want, uh, you know, an Atmos track of some woods or, you know, what cityscape near you, if it's more locally based. Um, but yeah, otherwise, you just have to get creative online and find stuff that you can use. Yeah, that's really good advice. I think um, I think maybe we'll listen back to this era. Someone can do a thesis on it in 10 years time and listen back to all of the ways that we've used the Freesound archive in this time, maybe around the world. But um, one last question um, for you, Tim, but I think it'd be interesting to hear um, Becky's perspective on this too. So John asks, um, with strong, obviously strong opinions about how this script would sound, was it hard to relinquish responsibility for mixing and sound design or was that part of the thrill of the work? You know, where does the, um, the sort of balance of collaboration and control um, come in and hmm. how do you guys navigate that as a as a team? 
Well, well, for for me, perhaps perhaps it's best to answer it on a on a on a personal level first of all. I mean, it it obviously helps knowing that your team is amazing and you're going to be getting an, an astonishing sounding piece of work. Um, but uh, for me, um, one of the things that kind of like working across lots of different forms and disciplines and stuff like that, what I what I found is the most important thing is to is for me to kind of like um, think as far in advance as possible about what about what my role is within a particular project to ask my collaborators all the time what it is that they want to get out of it which is i think a question that um, doesn't get asked often enough in any in in you know in there's loads of working processes where i've never i've never heard that asked at any point um but the other thing for me is that uh, is that if i'm cont- if i'm working um on other stuff where I am kind of like uh, flexing those muscles, you know, do, doing that kind of job in other ways, then it means that on a project like Forest 404, where it's important for me to get out of the way um, as soon as possible on on things like sound design, which of course, yes, I've got strong opinions on, but at the same time, but at the same time, I'll be working on something else of my own somewhere else that allows me to that allows me to, um, yeah push all of that kind of like um push all of that kind of like uh, uh all of those you know desires into that into that rather than like sort of be sitting as a backseat driver in the studio and really really annoying becky <laughs> oh no you wouldn't know <laughs> <laughs> that is very good advice um i'm interested becky do you have a, a similar um yeah relationship to collaboration is there anything you'd add to so what Tim said? I, I've not thought of doing that, Tim. I'm so glad you said mm. that for future projects, kind of at the start saying, okay, who is doing what? I think yeah. that is really important. It's kind of like any relationship. You need to know in part what your role is within a bigger picture in order to sort of not yeah, talk so, out of yeah, place or yeah. like feel at home or, you know. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good point. We didn't have that conversation, but I think we did manage it. <laughs> Um, well, was, yeah, we, we I, don't, I don't think we put it in so many words, but we, we kind of like, I, it's partly, I, I don't think, I, I didn't think I needed to ask you that question because I think both of us were saying it, but, yeah, you know, yeah. um, but, um, but it does, it sometimes people find it really hard to answer because they're not asked that question. Yeah. And sometimes you have to follow it up straight away with, well, um, I can, I can completely understand that this doesn't get asked very often and you might not know what you want to get out of this collaboration, but is there anything you really don't want to happen? Is there anything you want to avoid like the, you know, like the plague? Yeah. <laughs> well, on that note, I think yeah. we'll wrap up today on the plague. You just heard from Becky Ripley and Timothy X Attack in the session Story Through Sound. And if you liked this talk, I reckon you'll like Inner World, a 2019 episode on sound and world building. Search for it in our podcast feed. Find us on social media at AudioCraftFest and sign up for our newsletter at audiocraft.com.au to keep in touch. Until next time.